Okay, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, We're talking about kings and how we count their years. And we saw there's two different ways to count them from either Tishrei or from Nisan. The Mishnah mentioned Nisan. And uh, the Gemara concluded that Nisan is, in fact, the way that Jewish kings use uh, to count their kings. But um, Tishrei is the way that non-Jews do. Um, we saw that we proved this for Persians, uh, especially even though that's um, probably not true for Babylonians. And even within Israel, the northern kingdom was different from the southern kingdom. Uh, but regardless of that historical uh, background, uh, the Gemara is setting up a, a distinction between Nisan, which is for, for Jewish kings. And that seems to be uh, makes sense because Nisan is the as the time of Geula, especially Yisrael time for the Jewish people, Tishrei was when we uh, commemorate the creation of the world. So it makes sense that Tishrei would be for non-Jewish kings uh, of the whole world would be their day. And I think what the Gemara is doing here is it's setting up this uh, dichotomy between Tishrei and Nisan, between Jewish kings and non-Jewish kings, and saying something about the nature of both of their uh, outlooks and religions. And that's, I think that's the point here that it's saying regarding the Persian kings. So here's the last point that we said is that the Persian kings, the three Persian kings that we know of as Kodesh, Dariavish, and Artachshasta are all the same people. Now, again, even though historically they're different people, by saying they're all the same people, I think the Talmud is saying in a negatic way, they all have the same characteristics. And what is that characteristics? It's characteristic. And now the Gemara is going to get to a really insightful and incisive um, uh, uh, um, judgment of the Persians. We usually remember the Persians for good because they were pluralistic and they allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild. And so that's very good. But what was their motivation? And so we're going to get to a really important uh, discussion of motivation of good deeds and how, how much that makes a difference, why you do something. Okay, so here we are. We see the Persian Empire, Rav Chista proposed that the Persians count to Tishrei. But then we saw a, an example from Haggai, even though they had to add a couple of words, that they go from Nisan. And then we saw yet another example from Darius here, from the book of Ezra, that they use uh, the dates from Tishrei. And so we're wondering, which one is it? Is it Tishrei, as Rav Chista said, or is it Nisan? like we saw that one source. And so our answer is, uh, like we use the word chometz, which means vinegar, just like wine is good, and then you wait a while, it turns into vinegar. So too, this Persian king, or you could say the Persian empire in general, started out seeming good, but actually, when we look at them carefully, we're actually bad. And so now we're going to wonder, challenges this. Did the Persian kings ever become bad? All right, what exactly happened that you should say that? This is a pasuk, it's in Aramaic, because it's in that part of Ezra, which is in Aramaic. The pasuk is talking about that the, the king of Persia promises to give, Cyrus promises to give to the Jewish people anything that they will need for the building and upkeep of the Bet HaMikdash, which sounds like it's fantastic. So whatever they need from um, Bolaks, Dichrin, Imerin, Alavan, Le'elash, Shemaya, rams, lambs, for the burnt offerings, for the God of heaven, Chintin, Chintin is Chita, 
uh, wheat. You see, there's an extra nun here. Actually, the nun is really original, it's part of the root. In Hebrew, that nun gets assimilated into the tet. So that's why you have a dagesh in the tet. That happens to nun a lot. It likes to assimilate. Not in a bad way. This is just language assimilation. So it becomes a double tet. So that's chintin or chita. Melach, salt, hamad, umshach, wine, and oil. Whatever the Kohanim say that they need, in Jerusalem, it should be given to them every single day without fail. Okay, so this is quite an amazing thing. Look at the generosity of Cyrus. So he seems to be a good king, and that would explain why he should be count his years from Nisan as the Jewish kings do. So that's a sign of good uh, um, righteousness. And so why are you saying that he then uh, became vinegar? All right, this is a good question. We're going to see four answers. I'll show you just so you the outline so you see what they're going to be. Number one is that he did it for personal gain, uh, not because he was really, really cared about the Jews or about their God. Uh, second is that when he did, uh, or he did help to build the temple, but he made it flammable so that he could he could burn it down if he needs to. And the third is uh, that he sinned with his canine consort. We'll see more than you want to know about that. And then the fourth is that actually limited his donation. He could have given more, but we're going to reject the fourth one and leave any of the other three. Okay, so here we go. Uh, so Rabbi Yitzhak says, I'll answer you from your own source that you bring. From your burden, I can answer you. Uh, the next pasuk says that the king Cyrus, king Cyrus wanted to give them all these materials to make korbanot so that they, the Jews, can uh, offer sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So you see, he did it only for his self-serving benefit, not because he was actually righteous. Uh, okay, this is quite an amazing statement um, that's in Ezra because it's confirmed by an archeological find, one of the most important called the Cyrus Cylinder, um, which is, one second. <clears throat> Yeah, here. And uh, this was found in the, uh, in, in the foundation of a palace in Persia. They put it there, a kind of like a good luck charm, so that to protect the palace, kind of like the wrong way people uh, think of mezuzah. And uh, here it is in the British Museum. And here's what it says in cuneiform writing. And here's what it says in English translation, uh, which is the last line is the key. He says, everyone can go back to their ancestral lands and build their temples. And then it ends, may the gods who I settled in their sacred centers ask of all, the, all, those, all those gods that my days be long and they intercede for my welfare. May they say to Marduk, that's the, high, that's the head of the, the pantheon in, per, in his belief, um, as for Cyrus, the king, and Cambyses, his son, uh, may the people of Babylon, my kingship, and I settled, uh, may, may they bless you. Um, and, uh, and the son, right. The people of, ba of Babylon blessed my kingship and I settled the lands in peaceful abodes. So you see from here, this is archaeological evidence that um, really repeats the same thing that we see in Ezra, that in fact, while Cyrus were very thankful that he allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild the Bet HaMikdash, nevertheless, he did it for self-serving reasons uh, so that he did it for all the, all the different countries and nationalities, including the Jews, so each one of their gods would 
um, intercede on his behalf to the head of his pantheon. Okay, now the Gemara asks a very important question here. Wait a second, are you going to tell me that someone that does something for um, for personal gain, is that not a good thing? At least he does something. You know, sometimes you, people donate and to put their name on a, on a wall of a, of a wing. Does that mean that that they did? They, that's not a good thing that they did. Really a surprising baraita that says someone who gives a coin for sedakai says I'm giving this so that my children will 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 live and be healthy uh, so that I can merit to get get to the world to come. We call that a completely righteous person. This is surprising because we would think the opposite. Someone who does something without ul- ulterior motive, that's the completely righteous person. As the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avot, right? Don't be like a servant who serves the master to get, to get reward, but rather do it without reward. If reward comes, great, um, but you shouldn't do it just to get reward. Um, yet this Baraita says that it's fantastic. Okay, so let's go with the logic here, right? And assuming that this is a good thing, so then Cyrus is also Sadiq Amur, even if he did it for self-serving reasons. So that's our question, the contradiction between these two. And we answer, La kasha kan bi Israel kan bagohim. The second Baraita was talking about Jews. The first one was talking about Gentiles. Now, this seems to be a little uh, ethnocentric. Um, so what does this mean? Why is it okay for one group and not for the other? They seem to be doing the same thing. And the commentaries here explain, I think, uh, insightfully, that when, uh, when you see a, 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 a Jew that um, who gives tzedakah, maybe on the high holidays to get atonement or other times for, you know, for good luck or, or does other things, um, if, if it doesn't work out, they, they don't regret what they did. No one ever says, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray, I'm going to give tzedakah so my, my loved one gets better. And let's say they don't get better and they pass away. Do they say, oh, I spent all that money for nothing. I, uh, I, I spent all that time praying for nothing, right? No one says that. No one uh, uh, goes back to the charity and say, I want my money back because I didn't get the, the guarantee that I expected. People do things because it's a, it's a good thing to do. And they add on, you know, I, I hope that this will also bring about something positive. So um, they're, they're, they're not going to regret what they did beforehand. However, that's actually not true with idolatry. I don't think this is saying a racist claim that all non-Jews do things for ulterior motives, but rather it's saying that in the nature of ancient idolatry, this was the case that idolatry was built on a quid pro quo system that um, a a person gives a a sacrifice and says, okay, this will be for my God. And so that he will give, they will give me rain and and so on. And so there, it's not about building a relationship. It's simply transactional. And so the point is that if you are in a relationship, then it makes, it's okay to do things also for ulterior motive. If I could just give a um, a funny example, right? If I take out my wife to, to a nice dinner and then we come home and then she says, oh, I have a headache. I'm tired. I'm going to sleep. And then I say, oh, I took you out for nothing. So that would be a not, not a good thing to say. Completely theoretical example, um, so, right? And uh, the point is that when we, we have a relationship, so then we, um, we, are, we do things because we love the person. And same thing with B'nai Sel and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, We do things because we love him. And therefore, even this person is called a Sadiq Amor. But uh, in fact, this was not true for Cyrus who did things only for ulterior motive. 
Um, and uh, this is good release to Parashat HaShavua. Abraham gets tested, right? Would you even be righteous? Or Yov also, would you even be righteous if you, I took away all the good things that, that you had? And that I think is the, really the test of Akedat Yitzchak and the test of Yov. And they pass. And I think the Jewish people also through their long history, um, it wasn't always so easy to be Jewish and to fulfill mitzvot. And they stuck to it anyway, which I think uh, shows the truth of this statement. Okay, so that's answer number one, which is very interesting. The second answer, what did, where did Cyrus go wrong that he became corrupt? So when he made the the uh, the Bet Hamikdash, he made three rows of stone and one row of wood. Okay, now Lama Le David Hachi. The question is, why did he make it that way? Why didn't he make it all stone? Isn't stone nicer? Why did he put a layer of wood? He had in mind, oh, if they rebel against me, I'm making the Bet HaMikdash flammable. So that way it'll be easy to burn down. So you see to, you know, to, uh, to give someone a gift, but it's on, it has a self-destruct button that is, comes with strings attached and I can destroy it at any time. So you see that this great gift that he, that he gave is not so great after all. Okay, interesting. Now, the problem is that King Solomon's temple had the same uh, uh, same architecture. Three rows of marble, of stone, and one of wood. So that's the same thing. However, there are three differences. Number one, Shalomo put the wood on top. Whereas Cyrus put it on the bottom. By putting it on the bottom, he can light on fire and then the whole foundation, everything will fall. Shalomo put it on top just because it looks nice. If you burn, Even if you burn it, it won't destroy the whole building. Shalomo uh, sunk it into the, the building and he plastered it, the wood over with plaster so that even if there would be a fire, the wood would not burn. Whereas Cyrus didn't sink it into the building. It was there and exposed and he didn't plaster it. And so that it would be easy to burn down. Okay, so that's answer number two. We can go back to our chart, made it flammable. And now we're going to see this canine consort. How do we know that Cyrus uh, became corrupt? This is Basuk from Nechemia that we actually read yesterday. It's actually talking about and when he was the wine bearer, uh, he was pouring and he saw that he was, uh, uh, the king saw that Nehemiah was sad because of his people. And he said, okay, go and help them. And the Pasuk mentions, by the way, and his consort was sitting next to him. It seems to be like a random fact that's thrown in there. So what does it mean? Shegal usually means um, a, a consort a, a from, from his harem, uh, one of his uh, wives or, 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 um, or not wives. But here they say it means a, a, a female dog that he had next to him um, that he would presumably uh, sleep with. Okay, so now we counter that and says, how could you say the word shegal uh, does not mean concubine, but rather a dog? 
After all, he has another text altogether where it clearly means a person who is a concubine uh, because of this pasuk in Daniel about Belshazzar. This is the famous scene of the writing on the wall. Right? This is the, uh, the, this is the, the, the famous painting um, of it. And um, right, so this, he's at the feast and he sees the writing on the wall saying, your days are numbered. Now, um, in addition to that speech, he says, listen, uh, you have lifted yourself up against the God of heaven. Um, this, is, this, this is being told to Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon, of, of the Babylonian empire. And you your, you, your lords, your consorts and your concubines, Shegal is one of them, have drunk wine in them, in the bowls of the, of the, the holy, the, the holy Bet HaMikdash. And so now it refers to Shegal, Ishegal Kalbeta, he. So if it's talking about a dog, Kalbeta bat Hamrahi, do dogs drink wine? So it doesn't make sense in context. Clearly, it has to be talking about a person. No, there's no, even though you're right, dogs usually don't drink wine, but you could train it to drink wine. And this was a wine, a wine drinking trained dog. Okay, so the word shegal could still mean dog. Okay, another problem with this. This is Mizmor um, forty-five. Uh, you can read it. It's um, it's describing uh, coming and meeting the king, and it describes the king all decked out with beautiful jewelry, with his consort, um, with his consort to his right. Um, it's a bit of a um, uh, difficult means more to uh, explain because it seems to be describing a king, I don't know, King David or whoever it or Shalomo, whoever it is, um, in a beautiful way. But it, the description is very materialistic and over the top. It seems like an inappropriate to find in Tehillim. You should praise a king for his righteousness. Doesn't say anything like that in this Mizmor. Uh, so it's very strange Mizmor. And, and the point for us is, if a shegal means a dog and he has a dog to his right, so what is this, what is this the Navi uh, telling about this great king that's now going to come and be the king over Israel? Like, what kind of compliment would that be? Okay, good question. And the answer is, Bishar Israel Oh, it's actually a metaphor, and it's it's describing that this king, this righteous king um, of Israel, loves the Torah as much as the non-Jews love their shegal consort, canine consorts. Uh, so that's a, a curious comparison to make, right? But the point is to to show that. Uh, this great amount of love, but the contrast between them. And so, in fact, the, the, this scene is not a literal scene, but is supposed to be taken as a metaphor, which actually helps understand this mizmod a lot if you, if you take it more figuratively than literal. So this actually, we get a side benefit besides uh, uh, clarifying what the word shegal may mean. It also helps us read this difficult mizmod. Okay. Um, and anyway, so that, that's it. So we, we've established that the word shegal can, in fact, mean a dog. And so this is the problem with Cyrus, um, with the king of Persia. And that's the third one. And now the last one, which we're going to reject. No. Sorry, another answer to this to explain that word. Maybe, in fact, 
The word Shegal generally means uh, a queen, a princess, a, a person, a human person. But the Rabbah said in this in this context of Cyrus only or Artachshasta only, there it means dog. Even though in other places it has two meanings, so you don't have to do the uh, go, go, go with the difficult readings that we've seen above. Um, and why is it called Shegal? So why was it called the consort if the king of Persia, uh, if it was actually a dog for the king of Persia, maybe because he loved it as much as he would a consort or because he put it to his right as uh, one would place a consort. Good. So that explains that word. Now, the last, um, the last reason, what, what, what went wrong with the king of Persia that he became like vinegar? When the king actually comes to write up what he's going to donate, he says, up to a hundred talents of silver, up to a hundred of wheat, up to a hundred baht of wine, up to a hundred baht of oil, and salt is no limit. But the other ones are limited. So At first he promised and said, I'll give anything they need. But then he said, oh, you know, only uh, only a hundred dollars worth. Um, so you see that he didn't come through with his promise. Um, so now we question that. Wait, maybe initially he didn't know what the limit is, but then he said, ask the Kwanim, tell me what they need. And then he wrote, you know, the, uh, the maximum amount. This seemed like very big amounts. It doesn't seem, look like he's being stingy. Rather, the other answers, the first three answers we gave were the better answers and not, um, and not this last one, not that he was actually stingy. And this concludes our, uh, our um, examination of the first uh, uh, category in the Mishnah, that Nisan is the Rosh Hashanah for kings. Um, so that was uh, a lot of discussion on one word, but we learned a tremendous amount from it. Uh, to summarize, the kings of Persia, on the one hand, seemed like they were very good and they did a lot of good things. On the other hand, it wasn't complete. They did it for personal gain. Um, they always had strings attached and they personally in their own lives did terrible things. So therefore, um, they don't deserve to be counted, uh, have their years counted as the kings of, uh, the, of Israel also do. All right, now we get to the next word, ve'lid galim. Nisan is also the first um, month of the year regarding the festivals. Okay, good. Um, when we just, uh, explain the Mishnah, we mentioned that this probably also includes the fact that it is the first month. So that's the first month, and then you know the, the, the order of the festivals will go by the name by the name and number of the month. Um, but the Gemara asks, "Wait, there are no the the festivals are always in the middle of the month and not on Rosh Chodesh. So what do you mean that this is Rosh Hashanah for festivals? There aren't any festivals except." Rosh Hashanah, but that's not really, that's not one of the Shalosh Regalim. They're not on Rosh Chodesh. So, they're on the 15th. No, it means that the festival that's in the month of Nisan is the first of the festivals. That's Pesach. Pesach is the first of the festivals, and then they go in order, and Chag HaShavuot, and then Chag HaSukot. Okay, now why do we need to know the order? What practical difference does it make? Um, besides just, you know, the, the, or the order that you put 
that you put in the machzor when you're putting the page numbers? Like, what do we need to know this? It does make a halachic difference for someone who makes a vow to give something. There's a pasuk in Devarim that says um, uh, that when and you make a vow and donate something to the Bet HaMikdash, don't be late in payment. You have to pay it on time. Now, how long is on time? What's the, what's the, uh, uh, the, the allowance date by which the due date by which you have to pay? So for here, we're going to see that there are, there are going to be five different opinions, and we're going to spend the rest of the daf explaining the sources for each opinion and what the others do with that source. Um, so first, we'll, first we're going to focus on Rabbi Shimon, then we'll come back to the five of them. Um, if we follow Rabbi Shimon, if someone gives a vow that I'm going to give this animal to the Bet HaMikdash, or I say, this is Hekdesh, this is holy, and I have to give it, or Ma'arich is when I give my value, I donate the, my, my val, the value of my body uh, to the Bet HaMikdash, all these things, um, I have to pay it within three festivals, um, so that's Tanakama. You have three festivals to, to when you go around the full one cycle, then you have to pay it by the by the third one. Usually you come to the Beta Mikdash at that time on the festival. So you can go once, twice, third festival, you have to make sure to bring it. That's Tanakama. But then the Bishimon says, the Bishimon Omer, he's more lenient. He says they have to be in order. Pesach being first. Um, so therefore, you have to pass. Um, all three in order, in order to violate. And he'll demonstrate what that means. Uh, so you see, it could be as few as three or as many as five holidays that you can pass before, you, before the due date comes to pay up. How so? If you made a vow in Adar before Pesach and you say, I'm going to give this donation. So then Pesach comes first as the first holiday that will come and then Shavuot and then Sukkot. So within six, a six month period, your due date will come and that's it. So that will be three. If If you donate something after Pesach, but before Shavuot, then you um, can pass Shavuot. And then, right, Shavuot, then Sukkot, and then you don't have to pay yet because you didn't even start the, the, the Pesach. So then Pesach, that's when you start the counting, and then another Shav, second Shavuot, and then the second, a second uh, Sukkot. So that's the three in order, is those last three. So that, there you have five holidays that can pass before the due date comes. And if you donate something in the summertime, uh, then uh, Sukkot comes first, but that doesn't start the cycle yet. And then Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. So that will be four until you complete the three in order, uh, in order to have to pay it. So therefore, this, when the Mishnah says that Pe- Nisan is the first for holidays, it needs to tell you that, that because if you follow the Bishimon Bar Yochai, and he says the order of the holidays matter, not just any three in any order, which is what the Tanakhama says, but since they have to be in order, you have to know that Nisan is the first. Okay, so that answers our question. And now that we answered our question, we're going to uh, expand 
and bring all five different opinions about this. The five are going to be the two that we just saw. Tanakama says three festivals in any order. Rabbi Shimon says three festivals in order, starting from Pesach. Rabbi Mir says one festival. He's the most stringent. You got to pay. That's it right away. Um, which in a way makes sense because, uh, you know, if you owe someone money or you need to give them a gift or something, right? So before you, you haven't seen them yet, okay. But once you see them, if you're really eager to give a gift, you should give it on the first possible opportunity. So if someone donated and they're coming to the Bet Amintash, they should make sure to bring it with them. So that makes sense. Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov says two festivals. Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rashbi, even though this that's the son of number two, says just Sukkot. Sukkot is the main one. Okay, so let's see this inside. Someone who's obligated to pay money. Arachin, v'acharamin, v'ekteshot, chataot. Erech is my value. Achedim, I say this is um, this is a dedicated or consecrated, different ways of, uh, of promising something, something to the Bet HaMikdash. If I made a sin and I have to give a, by mistake, and I have to give a hatat or asham, olot, uh, ushlamim, some of these would be obligatory, some of them would be voluntary offerings. I feel like giving a korban shelamim because I'm happy about something. Sedakot, anytime you give sedakah, so this is very relevant. People make donations to uh, a charity or to the Bet Knesset, and then some people pay right away. Some people, they pay after a long time. How long uh, is, is it appropriate to wait before one should pay? Maserot, giving maser of one's um, produce. Bechor, maser, giving the firstborn or a tenth of one's animals. Pesach, korban Pesach, everyone you have to bring. Um, you have to bring it really on Pesach. But if you couldn't for some reason, then you have to make it up. Leket, shichicha, upea, all these things that are left for the poor. This is curious because what does it mean that you're going to wait till the next holiday? Leket is something that you forgot. Shichicha, uh, right? This is things that dropped or that you forgot in the field. So you just means that you leave it there for the poor people to come and get it. So what is it talking about that you're going to, you know, wait the, uh, two or three holidays to give it to them? So it could be talking about a case where, let's say there were no poor people around to actually pick it up right away. And then so you collect it and bring it inside so that it doesn't get ruined. And, and, you, and you say, oh, I'm setting this aside and I will give it to the poor people when they come. So you can do that, but then you have to make sure to give it to them in a timely manner. The corner of the field. Tanakama says, um, once you go past three festivals, uh, no matter when, doesn't matter when you start, whatever three that are the next ones, um, the th- after the third one, one violated you that delaying giving the charity. Rabbi Shimon says, no, it's going order, starting with Nisan, that's the most lenient. Even just one holiday, make sure to pay it by the next opportunity. He allows two holidays. He doesn't matter how many holidays, doesn't matter when. Sukkot, that's the main one. You have to have to pay everything by Sukkot, which means it could be as little as a day if you promise it before Sukkot, or it could be a whole year if you promise something right after Sukkot. Okay, so that's the end of the Braita. Let's find the sources. My Tamadatana Kama, who says three holidays. If you look in Devarim Tetvav 
and you probably know this by heart because this is the Kiddush, right? Shalosh Pamim Bashana. Yet it goes three times a year, you have to come, and then it lists them. Why do you have to list them? You just said in the three festivals of the year. So why again list them? Oh, it teaches me that for these, you have to wait. Yeah, um, uh, three times a year, you have to come to me and don't come empty handed, bring what you have. So by listing the three, it says when you bring what you're supposed to bring, you can wait three festivals in order to bring them. So that's his proof. Rabbi Shimon adds to that, the same context right before that was talking about Sukkot. And then it gives this summary statement. So I wouldn't even have to say Sukkot. You could have just said Masot and Chag Shavuot. So it adds Sukkot at the end to say, not only do you have to wait for three of them, but Sukkot has to be last. If it didn't have Sukkot, then he would agree with Tanakama. Says talks about Sukkot, and then it adds on, on also Shavuot and also Masot and Shavuot. Adding another Sukkot says that has to be the last one. So Pesach has to be the first one. That's Rabbi Shimon, um, who was our main uh, source before. Now, Rabbi Meir, my Ta'ama, he says just one a festival. Uh, different Pasuk in Devarim 12 that says, when you come there to the, to the Mishkan, you will bring to there your animals, your burnt offerings, everything that you promised. So you see that it says, when you come there, then you should bring it whenever you come there. The next time you come, make sure to bring it. Uh, so that's clear. Uh, Rabbanan who said three holidays, what, will, what are they going to do? What are they going to do with this pasuk? And it says ubata shama, which sounds like the very next opportunity. They would say that's for misvat ase. In other words, the best thing to do lechatechila is bring it on the first possible time you can. Um, and then if you didn't, you have two more holidays to come and, and before the due date. Uh, however, if only after two, three holidays. That's when you violate the, the law. So for Rabbanan, they have a, a misvat aseh, is the first holiday. And um, the lot aseh, you only violate after three holidays. But it be meir, so it be meir, that's a good point. What is he going to do with that? There's no difference between the if the Torah says, bring it on the first holiday that you come, bring your donation, then that means that's what you should do. And if you don't do that, then you already violated the law. That's the, that's the due date. There's only one due date. No, two do, no, not two, two due dates. Good. Will it be Eliezer ben Yaakov? My Tama. He says, um, based on two holidays passing, what's his source? Tichtiv. Elle ta'asul Adonai b'mo'adechem mi'ut mo'adechem shenaim. He's bringing it from um, from the end of Bemidbar, Parashat Pinachas. After it lists all the Musaf and Korbanot offerings for every holiday, at the end it gives a summary statement that says, these you should bring to Hashem on your festivals, in plural. Festivals means how many? Well, it can't be one, but we always assume the minimum amount of plural is at least two. So therefore, we don't, we're not going to assume more than the minimum uh, possibility. So therefore, the minimum of plural is two. That's why you have to bring all these korbanot that we just mentioned, and any other korbanot, you have to bring them after two festivals. Now, how, what is Rabbanan going to do with that? Since it says, that's two, right? 
and not three. They, they use that pasuk for something completely different, uh, which is that um, all the festival uh, offerings are, are, are equated with each other, um, that they all atone for impurity that may come to the Mikdash. People by mistake, they bring impurity. And so we know that uh, some, some korbanot do that, like for Rosh Chodesh. But how do we know that all korbanot, once the festivals also atone? And he learns it from this pasuk that, com- that compares the ones for Moadechem uh, with other types. So he uses it for something completely different. And so that's how Rabbanan get out of that. He says, just Sukkot. It's the only one that matters. The Tanya, that's the due date for everything. So he uses the same logic that we saw before um, that actually his father used, but he understands it a little bit differently when it says, you should bring to Hashem all the, you know, your, your sacrifices three times a year. And it mentions Masot, Shavuot, and then Sukkot, you didn't have to say Sukkot because that was already the last holiday that was already, that was just discussed. So you could have left it out. So why is it added in? To tell you that only Sukkot matters. Not that Sukkot has to be the last one, as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, says, but only Sukkot. Okay, but it be Meir, but it be Eliezer ben Yaakov, hi, Bechaga Masot, Bechaga Shavuot, Bechaga Sukkot, Mai Darshu Be. So to be Meir and to be Eliezer ben Yaakov, the ones who say one or two festivals, right? One or two festivals, and uh, they brought their proofs. What would they do with this Pasuk um, in Devarim? So they learned something different. On other how on on uh, on other holidays, you should you should bring your necessary offerings on the first of Pesach or the first of Sukkot. If you didn't bring it on the first, you can make it up all all the all seven days, all seven days of Pesach or all eight days of Sukkot plus Shemini Aseret. Now, how about Shavuot? Shavuot is only one day. So what if I didn't get a chance to bring my, my necessary korbanot, the korban re'iyah um, on Shavuot itself? Can I make it up after the fact, even though the holiday is over? And the answer is yes. Talmud Lomar, Bechag HaMasot, Bechag HaShavuot, Bechag HaSukkot, Makish Chag HaShavuot, Bechag HaMasot. So you see, it's putting the Shavuot next to Masot, to say that these are similar. Just like Pesach, I can make up all seven days. So too, if I miss my opportunity to bring Korban on Shavuot, I have the next seven days to make it up. And this is Halakha said Today, we continue to skip Tachanun um, uh, seven days after uh, Shavuot for this very reason. Okay, now question is, it's also right there connected to Chag Sukkot, and yet Chag Sukkot is eight days, so maybe we should learn that you have eight days after Shavuot, like Sukkot, and not seven, like uh, Pesach. No, Shemini Regeb of Nasmohu, right? We know from previous Masechet that Shemini, that Shemini Aseret is a separate holiday. You can't learn from Shemini Aseret. So, really, it's actually the same as Sukkot proper, which is also seven days. 
All right. Well, Wait, I still am not comfortable. I'm not, not totally satisfied with this because maybe when you say Shemini Aseret is its own holiday, that's regarding these six items de- uh, denoted by this uh, mnemonic. But maybe for Tashlumin, for making up, maybe it's, it's the same. Um, maybe the eighth day is a continuation um, of the first seven days. These, this mnemonic, we learned it once before, but we can remind ourselves here, um, the pe is for pais, that we make a new lottery on Sukkot, there's uh, 70 bulls, we have a special lottery uh, to decide which kohanim get to do each service, but on Shemini Aseret, they start again. Uh, it doesn't matter what you did before, and Zeman is that we say, Shechiyanu on Shemini Aseret because it's a new holiday. Regal has its own name, Shemini Chag Aseret Hazeh. And Korban has different a set of Korbanot. Um, its Korbanot are kind of like the Korbanot for the high holidays, not like Sukkot, um, the Sukkot Korbanot. Shir has its own uh, Shir, its own Mizmor that the Livyim would sing. And the Beracha is, we have a, a, separate, a separate statement in Berkat Amazon in which we, we, we um, call it Shemini Chag Aseret We insert um, what's and it's different from what we say for Sukkot. Okay, so you see that I, I would think maybe Shemini Aseret is in fact different for those things. Maybe for Tashlumin, in fact, the eighth day is, does continue. And therefore, perhaps Shavuot could be eight days, just like Sukkot. Mishnah says you can bring do a makeup for the first day of Sukkot, even on Shemini Aseret. So I might think that. And the final answer is Tafasta Tafasta General principle throughout the Talmud is um, you should take the minimum of what you can get. Like, you know, if you grasp a lot. So if sometimes if you don't bite off more than you can chew, if you try to get too much, you'll end up, everything will fall out of your basket and you'll have nothing. So if you can get a little, then, then that's better. So therefore the, the, the application here is that we're not sure uh, what to do with Shavuot. It can't be only one day that you can bring a Korban. You need to have makeup days. Well, should we compare Shavuot to Pesach and say only seven makeup days? Or should we compare it to um, Sukkot, where you have eight makeup days. And the answer is, if you take the minimum, because we have to assume the minimum, we cannot assume a bigger uh, chidush than is, uh, than is, uh, is, is possible. Uh, so by taking the minimum, that's why we compare it to, to Masot, um, to Pesach, and uh, not to Sukkot. Um, and so that we're going to pause here. Tomorrow we'll see what is the comparison between Shavuot and Sukkot. It has to be for some other reason. Uh, but we stop here for now. With uh, So we concluded the discussion of the kings and their years. And now we're in the middle of the second word of the Mishnah, uh, which is the order of the festivals. Baruch Adonai Amen